0: On this episode, I'm in the room with Andrew Arndt discussing his book, All Flame, entering into the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 78. I'm your host, Ryan Hughley, and for those of you joining me for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Today I'm talking with author and pastor Andrew Arndt about his new book, All Flame, Entering into the Life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Andrew is a teaching pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs and the lead pastor of the New Life East Campus. He also hosts the Essential Church podcast. I wanted to talk to Andrew for a couple of different reasons. For one thing, we both grew up in charismatic churches and have developed a deep love for the writings of Christian monastics and contemplatives. We've also both planted and transitioned churches that we've planted. And finally, Andrew went from pastoring a church that he describes as a neo-monastic, charismatic, liturgical, justice-driven network of house churches to pastoring in a megachurch. And since those are like two totally different planets, I was curious to hear about how God had worked all that out in his heart. So we talked about all that and his new book, which is all about both the importance of having a practical, relational understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, as well as what it looks like to experience and practice the presence of God in our lives. Now, one thing I love most about hosting this podcast is the opportunity it affords me to meet and learn from people that I don't know. I also love that I get to invite you into that process. So to that end, I want to invite you in the room for my conversation with Andrew Arndt. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on in the room. Uh, always yeah. appreciate someone giving us time, which is like our greatest commodity. And so to give a little bit of time to be able to talk uh, is really kind of you. And I'd love to just start at the beginning of your life. We haven't had a chance to meet before, so I'm I'm really yeah. excited to get to learn more about you. So tell me where you were born.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Ryan. Our relationship is five minutes old, so here hey, we I go. I feel but like we're off to a really good start. Our first coffee appointment, aren't we? Yeah, yeah,
0: it's going good.
1: You know, my background is—I'm uh, born and raised non-denominational charismatic okay. uh, up in Thank central you. Wisconsin. Born 1981, so I was kind of smack in the middle of the charismatic renewal of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, uh, my parents and their friends—most of them—grew uh, up mainline, you know, Lutheran, yeah, or they were Catholic, and then they started attending camp meetings, and uh, and the spirit was moving and they saw signs and wonders and people speaking in tongues and all of that. And, uh, they knew they had known Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. in that way that sort of that formal, maybe surfacey way, way that you do. But I think Jesus became really real to them in the camp meetings. And, yeah. um, so in the late seventies, they started a prayer meeting in the basement of a Catholic church Okay. and the Lord, with just some of their friends. I don't think they were trying to break away or do something new. They just wanted to kind of continue this, um, the spirit of what they'd experienced. And the Lord really moved on them, and the prayer meeting started growing, and they felt like they were supposed to plant a church out of that. So in the late, very late '70s, um, they called another friend of theirs who was also born and raised Central Wisconsin. He was away at uh, Bible College doing some training, Bible School doing some training. They called him and said, "We feel like the Lord's calling you to be our pastor. Would you move back up here and help us plant this church?" And uh, him and his wife agreed. And kind of the rest is history. They planted the church in the late seventies, little storefront charismatic church in Marshfield, Wisconsin city, of 18,000 wow. people. And um, man, um, it, like I said, not a big town, but the, the church grew and the Lord was moving on it. So I think at its height, it probably grew to seven or 800 people. Wow. And uh, you know, it was a profound experience. It took me a long time to figure it out, but um, I often said, when, when I started putting the pieces together in my twenties, I started saying to people that I think that my parents and their friends, were good charismatics because they were good Lutherans and Catholics first. And even though they (laughs) might not have, they were trying, I know they were trying to distance themselves, but actually the deep substructure of the faith, you know, the foundations were there, Mm -hmm. which allowed them to be charismatic in all the right ways. And so I know that people have been hurt uh, by uh, some of the excesses that they've seen in in the charismatic movement. We just didn't see a lot of that. It was a lot of really really clear headed, level headed, uh, hardworking central Wisconsin types. Yeah who just believed that Jesus was alive and the spirit was moving. And that means that anything is possible. Awesome. So I, that's how I grew up. I just, i loved the church of my upbringing it had its flaws, but it was great. Just gave me a great love for the church, love, a desire to help God's people felt the call to preach from an early age and uh, but didn't know what to do with that. So I went off to oral Roberts university uh, okay. when I graduated high school, studied business, and, uh, and I, and that's when the call call actually really clarified. Like I just had this burning desire to preach. And so decided to go to seminary. I went to seminary up in Chicago, Trinity mm-hmm. evangelical divinity school. So I'm yep. stepping out of the charismatic world yeah. into the reformed world. And I'm telling you, man, for a, for a, for a kid that didn't know anything about historical theology, um, had never really been exposed to deep Bible teaching you know, getting down to the level of the Greek and the Hebrew and how's it all work. Trinity, man, I needed it. And it was so good for me. So I spent three great years there and just fell in love with what I've come to, you know, know as the great tradition, how the church has talked about God for 2000 years, the great consensuses that have driven us along. And, uh, so finished up in 2006, went back down to Oklahoma I was an associate pastor there for three years. Okay. And in early 2009, my wife and I just felt like we had grown as much as we could grow in that role. And we didn't feel like Tulsa was like, we just didn't feel called there long term. Yeah. We sensed that something was new on the horizon for us. And so some friends of ours had uh, started a small, they kind of, it's a long story, but they kind of accidentally started a church in Denver. Okay, And uh, they weren't pastors by vocation but they led it for about a year and a half and just really felt like we're in a way it's kind of a full circle, isn't it? You know, like the prayer meeting in the late seventies and the, and so they just felt like we can't go forward unless we got a pastor. We need somebody to lead this. And so they asked us if we'd step up and lead and we prayed about it, felt good about it, pulled the trigger and moved there in 2009. So that was bloom church. Yep. And we grew bloom from that 50 or 60 people to five or 600 house churches all over uh, the Denver Metro area, really living intentionally together. Bloom was. I came to start calling Bloom, Bloom was like my effort to like take all the best things I'd ever seen in church history and see if we couldn't do them in the 21st century. So, yeah. so we called Bloom a, neo-charism- a neo-charismatic, liturgical, uh, justice-oriented um uh monastic community of house churches was like kind of our thing. We were just trying the most to like,
0: specific description of a church I've ever exactly. heard. Exactly. We were just trying to do
1: things different. I wanted yeah. it almost to have I wanted us to have just almost like a monastic missional feel. Yeah. And I wanted us to have the liturgy and the deep theology to keep us grounded. Yeah. But I wanted the charismatic fire. I yeah. wanted us to pray for healing and services and yeah. to see people speak in tongues in house churches and yeah. all that stuff. And God did it. It was beautiful. And um to our great surprise in 2016, we started feeling like the Lord was leading us. I thought I was going to die in Denver. Uh-huh. We started feeling like the Lord was leading us to lay it down. And so we left, um, handed over to new leaders. It's still going, going great. Left in 2017, and we've been at New Life Church here in the Springs ever since. I am uh, just launched a new congregation with New Life over on the east side of the city. So I'm the yeah. pastor of New Life East. And just loving life. I we, I we have It's a great situation here. Our senior pastor, uh, Brady Boyd, really functions as sort of a bishop. Over mm-hmm. all of us, we have multiple congregations all over yep. Colorado Springs. It's all we all get to do. We share a preaching calendar, but it's all live preaching and you know live worship. And we share culture and values and theology, but we get to do things like contextual ministry. You get to do things okay. the way that we want to, and it's a joy. I'm,
0: it's awesome. I'm in the
1: yoke with the brothers and sisters that I really care about. And, um, I'm grateful to serve alongside.
0: It's awesome, so, man. Yeah. All right. I've got more questions about that. First of all, I want to know where, where did your, one of the things I've really appreciated about you that I, was evident in your new book, All Flame, but also as I've been following you recently on social media is your appreciation and love for monasticism and the mm-hmm. contemplatives. Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up in the charismatic church as well. Mm-hmm. Those were not tribes or, uh, no or pieces of church history that were emphasized or I was even aware of until later in life. So where did your appreciation for those streams come from?
1: Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. Nobody's asked it, me that question like that before. I, I don't know Ryan that agree or disagree with this based on your own experience. But I think when you're, when you're raised charismatic, I actually think um, contemplative and monastic, intuitions are built in even though you don't know it and the greatest i agree with that that i knew in my community growing up they were people of deep prayer Mm -hmm. and so they just they got it instinctively they They listened to god they understood solitude they understood listening to god they understood what the desert fathers and other monastics would call compunction Mm -hmm. you know that where you get you're so into the presence of god that all of a sudden you're horrified Mm -hmm. (laughs) by how broken the world is and how that brokenness touches you and tears start to flow. Yeah. Um, my mom, uh, really exemplified that in so many ways. She was a woman of uh, fat she was always fasting. She so mm-hmm. understood that. So that was just built in, you yeah. know, uh, one of the w- women in our community that I've told a lot of stories about over the years was, uh, an old German woman named by the name of Ola, Ola Zagarek and Ola, um, Ola attended a Catherine Kuhlman revival and healing meeting Hmm. in the 70s, sometime after her husband died. She was about 60 or so years old. And she really experienced the power of God in this profound way and made a decision in her 60s that she would marry Jesus. And and not get married ever again, just give herself completely to the Lord. I don't think that she knew what she was doing, but she was taking a monastic vow, really. She was like committing. To this life of solitude and prayer, so those people were always all around me. And um, um, a real seminal moment for me was in high school. Um, I walked into the kitchen one day, and my mom was sitting at the island reading a book, and that book was *The Celebration of Discipline* by Richard Foster.
0: Such a good. Book. And
1: I said, "What are you reading?" And I was beginning at that point. I was really starting to get interested in the spiritual life and starting to cultivate one of my own. And. So I said, what are you reading? And she said, well, it's this book on spiritual disciplines that, um, our pastor gave me. And she said, it's good. I like it. You know, do you want it when I'm done? And I said, sure. I'd love to." And and man, so she finished and she gave it to me and it just lit my soul on fire. It was like, here's this guy who is so aware of all these other people that were way outside of my tribe, but they were doing the same things. I just kind of talked about it differently. And, um, So there was that book. And then there was also, you know, it's a book that evangelicals are very familiar with, but we don't realize it's a brother Lawrence, the practice of the presence of God. Yeah. Yeah. I've been reading that book since I was 16 years old. Right. This is a cat. This is a Catholic French monk. Yeah. You know, living this life, but we were so nourished by his spirituality. So I think that was there. And it's just realizing that like, if I want to go deeper with God, if I want to experience holiness, there are there are really wise guides that are everywhere in the great tradition that have worshiped and pressed into the same God as me. And they have, um, well, they just have a lot of good stuff to say about how that all works. So I think that's probably where it started. I think the charismatic thing sets you up well for it.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. My grandmother and my grandfather got divorced I don't know. I think sometime in the 70s, if I remember correctly, and she did not remarry and became a missionary and spent a lot of time in the Holy Lands and then Ireland. But same wow. thing, she was, you know, charismatic and but, you know, spent, I mean, literally lived a very monastic life. And so yeah. I don't think I've ever really thought about that until you kind of put those pieces together, but I do think that you really do see that modeled when you grow up in a healthy you know, yeah. charismatic environment where I do think yeah. that the ground is laid for, for so much of that. In addition yeah. to the the people you mentioned, who are some other people from church history that really influenced you in that direction?
1: Mm, that's a, that's a good question. I, the, or, the, our, our, not, or
0: even our right now.
1: Oh, well right now is the Richard Foster thing and, uh, and Dallas Willard, I think reading yeah. Dallas um, really just helped, helped me see more of, uh, of the faith. I, I, I think, You know, honestly, the Richard Foster thing, that kind of launched the safari for me of experiencing who else is out there. And so uh, just reading the confessions for the first time and realizing this was a working pastor who also had this passionate love for God, understood the mystical union, and starting to read other guys, Gregory of Nyssa, who was just a Mm -hmm. first-rate theologian, but just loved God. And then some of those folks that stood you know, kind of in two worlds, you know, Basel, uh, Basel the Great. I mean, he was both monastic and also pastoral and theological. So there are like people have done it before. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that really got got me started. I'm trying to think if there are others kind of that are more contemporary that have been guiding lights for me. And I'm not sure that there are so many like that, although I've, I've been encouraged that, you know, the renaissance of spiritual formation in the United States has made it so that
0: Totally. We're all very
1: excited about this and we're all really working on it together. So I, I don't feel, you know, I don't feel weird yeah. when, uh, you know, I'm reading a book by Joan Chittister on yeah, the rule yeah. of St. Benedict, you know, that's kind of par for the course. I think, right. oh, and I'll just, I guess I would be really remiss actually if I didn't talk about Eugene Peterson. Yeah. I yeah. think part of what Eugene gave me and has continually given me is a vision of pastoral ministry that's very classical in the sense that you, Eugene was a uh, he was a monk who was pastoring yeah you know and uh, the way that he thought about pastoral ministry the way that he thought about the life of holiness um, that's very resonant with the first few centuries of the church, the desert fathers, the monastic tradition that came out so I've learned a lot from 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 all of those streams for sure
0: yeah well, one thing I'm so curious about with you is <clears throat> I'd read about Bloom Church a little bit. And yep. now you're at New Life. So, yeah. you pastored in, in Bloom Church, which mm-hmm. is neo-monastic, charismatic, liturgical, justice-driven network yeah. of house churches. Yeah. And now you're at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, yep. which I understand yep. you guys are multi-site. But I mean, we're still talking yep. New Life's like OG megachurch. Yeah. So, in, in some ways, so. Tell me about how that happened. And yeah. I understand yeah. you felt uh, it was time to lay the one down, but what's yeah. different about pastoring in those two very different environments? And and Colorado Springs from Denver is like a different planet yeah,
1: as well. it's huge. Well, you know, two things. I think that one is we wouldn't have made the decision to come here unless we felt like there was already a confluence of our deep values. Yep. Yeah. And, um, so if we didn't feel like a new life was a hospitable environment for us to continue to be us, we wouldn't have come. Yeah. And, uh, so, and that's a funny thing, you know, I, I know that on paper, I think that our move from bloom, I mean, I was identified as the bloom guy and, I, and self-identified yeah. as that I'm this guy who does this thing. And all of a sudden, like you see the OG megachurch,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I think on paper, that was really confusing for a lot of people, but it yeah. made sense for us because spiritually there was resonance. I think the other thing, Ryan, um, I'm sure you'd agree with this. I think that the biggest way that the Lord leads us and unfolds our destiny is by relationships. Yeah. And uh, I think that's how he calls us. I think that yeah. that's how he unfolds the path for us is people that we know. Sure. Know, that they're saying, come and preach the gospel over here or whatever. So yeah. I had some really key relationships at New Life Church. Uh, the first was with Daniel Grothy. Daniel is the associate, one of the uh, two associate senior pastors at New Life. And he's the lead pastor of New Life Friday night. Daniel and I went to Oral Roberts University way okay. back when. Okay. And became friends then. And our friendship really grew while I was pastoring in Denver. And what I noticed, this was probably back in 2010 or 11, I was kind of vaguely aware, you know, I, the New Life Church. I ha- actually had some history with New Life Church. New Life's founding pastor used to come up to our church and preach. And our yep. pastor used to come down here and preach. So we had some background. And I was vaguely familiar that there were some interesting things that were happening at New Life in particular Daniel Grothy, and then the other now associate senior pastor, Glenn Pacquiam. Yeah. They're leading these services, these congregations, and they're quoting N.T. Wright.
0: Yeah, that's different.
1: And Eugene Peterson Uh and C.S. Lewis, and they're reading Augustine. And like, okay, so something is happening over there. Yeah. And so separately, I looked at each of them up, Daniel and Glenn, and said, hey, I don't know if y'all remember me at all, but, you know, I'm up in Denver. This is what we're doing. I think we got a lot in common. We should talk shop. Mm-hmm. And so I grabbed a lunch with Daniel, separate lunch with Glenn. And man, we just talked and talked and talked. And what was so weird, Ryan, and it really defied how I was wired at that point. Because we yeah. started Bloom in, in, in part, actually almost exclusively as a response. Yeah to the deracination of the church that in our opinion had taken place through the North yeah. American evangelical mega church. You just so like,
0: described uh, you why know. 95% of churches get planted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like
1: uh, I, 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 the great giveaway, you know, David yep. Fish. I mean, that was a book that really resonated with me. Yep. And I just thought, how, how can you do the gospel effectively inside these institutions? And yet here are these guys that they are doing it and they weren't doing it. I think this was the kicker for me that made me really intrigued they weren't doing it in this weird subversive way where they were fighting their senior pastor. Like we're yeah. doing this kind of thing on the side. And Correct. we're not sure if their senior pastor, Pastor Brady, he's reading the same books with them and empowering them. And so there's this thing that was happening. That was so, it was just very confluent with what we were doing. So when we came to the end of our time at Bloom, they were just so sweet to us. Daniel really helped us a lot with our transition out of, out of bloom and kind of through the whole discernment process. But they said to us, if you guys don't know what your plans are next, Mm -hmm. why don't you just come on down to the Springs and preach and, you know, kind of get strong again and, you know, spend some time discerning what's next for you. So I, and this is to answer your question, Ryan, I think what's fascinating to me, the longer I live and the longer I pastor is not how different churches are, but how similar they are. If they're really following Jesus and if they're, and if they're really serious about taking the great ideas of the church seriously, a new life in a weird way is more similar to me to bloom than it is different. It's awesome. You know, like we, we're worshiping Jesus. We're opening the scriptures and contemplating them together. The Nicene Creed is our statement of faith. We're empowering people to try to be the church together. Justice yep. really matters to us. We're trying to open up the doors for the charismatic expression to run wild in our space. Uh, the only real difference is maybe context and in some way, form. Yeah. of what we're doing. So there's kind of a different container for it, but the spirit of it is very similar and, and that's made it uh, joyful among many other reasons to be here. So yeah.
0: Love that. It's awesome. Well, it's clear books have been uh, very influential in your life and now you've written a great one. Uh, your new book's called All Flame, Yeah, uh, entering into the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm pumped to, to talk to you more about that. But first, just tell me a little bit about the title All Flame. I, I read about uh, obviously where that came from, but I'd love to hear yeah, yeah. you just talk about where that title, All Flame, came from.
1: Well, three years ago, after, after having left Bloom, that was a, that was a harder experience leave, leaving that place than I thought it was going to be. I okay. really felt as though everything had been, everything, uh, r- wrong or not, I felt like everything that was important to me had been stripped away. I, that was a real place of identity for me. Um, it was also a place of an imagined future Yeah, this is what I'm going to be doing. We're going to grow this thing. I'm going to train other pastors. We were training a lot of pastors and how to so it was. And so to vacate that was not like resigning a job. It was like taking off an identity. I felt as though I was in a this is true. I really felt like I was in a witness protection program, that I changed my name and got a new ID and was so weird. So it was this. It was a desolate and desolating experience, which on paper doesn't make sense. It's sort of like, wasn't that the destination? Go work for a big church and yeah. they got resources and they could pay you and all that. But for me, it was a death. It was a real death, not because of anything wrong with new life. These people are the sweetest people I've ever met. They're just amazing. But because of how much boom meant to me. And I had known about the Desert Fathers. I don't, I cannot even remember what did it, but for one reason or another, one day I just decided to purchase the sayings of the Desert Fathers. And as, as you know, if our readers aren't aware, you know, third century of the church, the church is becoming very powerful and rich. And there were a group of people that thought the radicality of the gospel was being lost in that. And so they fled yeah. to the desert and they start trying to recapture the radical way of Jesus. Alone, pretty soon they start living in community because it's better to do it that way. Yeah. And the sayings of the Desert Fathers is really kind of a record of their sayings and their stories. And I started reading that, and I just thought these people are saying things that I need to hear. They're just incredible. These are like these are like OLA's, you know, yeah. like the people that I grew up with, just in kind of a different modality. And so this uh, story that really captivated me was a story about two men, Abba Lot. Um, They always kind of went by that, you know, Abba, Father. They would have these small schools of disciples. So Abba Lot goes to Abba Joseph one day. Joseph was widely regarded as one of the holiest men of his time. And and Lot says to Joseph, you know, hey, talk to me, man. Like, give me a word. That's kind of what they would always say. Give me a word. You know, like I fast and I pray. and I read the scripture. I monitor my thought life. I give charitably. I try to live in peace. I'm doing everything I know how to do. Like, what more is there for me? And as the story goes, Joseph stands up and he lifts his hands to the heavens. His fingers become like ten lamps of fire, and he says, "If you will, you can become all flame." And I I love that story, and I chose it as the title for the book because it really captures what the book is about. That that the life of faith is not just the life of ticking religious boxes, um, and it's and and for so many of us, um, we are doing all the right things. Yeah, you know, so we prayer and fasting and all that stuff. You know, the modern stuff now is like, well, like, I. You know, I practice the Ignatian Examen at the end of the day, and I know my right. Enneagram type, and I watch a lot of TED Talks, and I do yoga, and right. but it's not working for me. What? What? How do I? What? What is? What more is there for me? And Joseph seems to think that there's this kind of almost transitional thing that happens, where we slip beyond just the doing of faith and into what the ancients called union with God. It's that yeah. place where it's difficult to know where God ends and we begin. And what I'm contending for in the book is that. Where that happens, where that all flame experience really happens is in the big deaths of our lives. That Christianity is almost the school of dying. Yeah. And uh, it's the learning to die before you die and experience that union with God. So that's, that's where it comes from. I'm trying to throw people out beyond Christianity as just doing a bunch of stuff and into Christianity as the wild mystery of dying into the triune God.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do do that by drawing us into the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity is arguably one of the most confusing, uh, doctrines of Christian theology by far. Yeah. Um, and
1: yeah the math just doesn't work does it
0: no it really doesn't (laughs) And i think it was augustine that said the quickest way to become a heretic is to try to explain the trinity yeah Uh, and so but you've done it without becoming a heretic i think so yeah yeah job on that
1: well i hope so
0: yeah it's also you know i think another problem with it is it's often written about in such a dry and academic manner that yeah Uh, The significance of it is lost. It's also a significant dividing line, like, for instance, pastoring in Salt Lake City, where the majority Mm -hmm. of our population is still Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. Mormons don't hold to a Trinitarian view of God. So there's just like, it's a real big undertaking to wade Mm -hmm. into those waters. So tell me about why you saw this as so important, that you would choose to dedicate the time necessary to write a book and to give work to this.
1: It didn't start out as a book on the Trinity. Okay. Um, and that didn't start out as the framework. Actually, the the original idea for the book was something like the ordinary contemplative. Okay. That was what I had pitched to Nav Press. And um and the idea was I wanted to help ordinary men and women understand how their lives are already calibrated yep. for holiness if they just had eyes to see. God was yep. already like the biography of our um, our spiritual biography is actually embedded in the circumstances of our lives. That's how God unfolds who we are, is yep. in those circumstances. So I wanted to write a book that would help them see that the great and troubling circumstances of our lives, the beautiful and vexing places of our lives, are already occasions for meeting with God. That was the idea. And um, I still think I executed the idea, but what happened was, so what had happened was, <laughs> yeah. so I, as I started writing, I thought, okay, this is really a, a book about God and human beings. And so I I was reaching for a framework, I just need a good framework to hang these ideas on. Well, we can't really talk about this at all unless we talk about God and you can't talk about God unless we talk about the being of God, the fundamental irreducible being of God, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why don't I just use that as the framework and see if it works and talk about the spiritual experience of awakening to each member of the Godhead Hmm. and then see if I can't turn that on its head and talk about how those great, difficult, fraught places of our lives also have a Trinitarian flavor to them if we have eyes to see. And as I wrote and kept writing, I just, th- I just thought, this, it's working. Yeah. This is fun for me to write. What, I'm, what I get to do here is I'm not, I'm doing, I'm talking doctrine, but I'm also, I'm really talking about what does it mean to be human? Yep. And so that's why I've said it's a, it's a Trinitarian spiritual theology. Yeah. It's not, it didn't start out as a, and I don't think it really is in its essence, a, uh, an effort simply to contemplate the divine essence.
0: Yeah.
1: It's really an effort to talk about the mystery of existence.
0: Yeah. And the
1: mystery of existence is that there is one who existed before us. Right. And the texture of his being also happens to be the texture of our lives. And it's yeah. time for us to wake up to that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that. It is interesting to me how different denominations and networks and tribes have a tendency to have a specific person of the Trinity that is emphasized at times over others. Yeah. And so, like for instance, the Neo-Reform movement is very Christ-centered and the charismatic movement is all Holy Spirit, not all Holy Spirit, but an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. The contemplatives really wrote about God as Father. Yeah. I think is lost so much. And so I, I wonder if you see that. And if so, what do you think is lost? If we unintentionally diminish any part of the Godhead, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, uh, I think a robustness of experience. I mean, there's uh, there's the warmth and the grounding that is God the Father, and there is the anchoring that is the Person of the Son, and there is the wildness that comes from the Holy Spirit. And I think if you exaggerate one aspect of who God is, or if you put forward one of the persons as like hey, this is our this is this is our you yeah. know member of the godhead i just think something goes goes sideways and um fortunately though uh, i don't think that god lets us get very far with that you know yeah. and i think that the scripture is always fighting against that because the father is shouting from heaven to the son you know yeah. hey look at my beloved son i mean that's that's an astonishing thing to think about it is, that yeah. when the voice of god speaks the voice of god is pointing to the son in fact the voice of god is the son the son mm-hmm. is the word and and then this, the son says, the son is trying to glorify the father and says that he's sending the spirit and the spirit is leading us into Christ Jesus. And yeah. So if you, I think if you read the scripture, right, you get all three, obviously. And I also think that if you, the mystical experience of God, when it's right, you're led into the mystery of, of all three of them. So I, I think that there's some part of our ecosystem spiritually that gets kind of warped. If you just emphasize one over the other, but uh, one over the other, but I know that there are reasons why people do that. I mean, I, I, I you know, those folks that have been hurt by the charismatic thing, yeah, sure, you know, understandably hesitant about the Holy Spirit, or they've seen excesses. Yeah, it's yep. safer, you know, yep. to go okay, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, you know, lived, died, rose from the dead, and uh, then can we just read the Bible and we'll right. just trust that the Holy Spirit? You know, it's kind of John MacArthur spirituality, Father, yep. Son, open Bible, or something. Yep. and a lot of people, if that's functionally, that's kind of where they're at. Yeah, I get that. And I I get one of the things I had to really wrestle with in writing with the book, writing the book is that so many people now talking about God as father. Yeah, is so challenging now. So we're living in the age of me too and church too, when so much physical uh, abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse has happened at the hands of powerful male figures. Yeah, man. And then all of a sudden we come proclaiming a gospel in which Jesus leads us to God as father. Man, that is not easy to do. Right, so right. I understand why people do it. But I think that's the reason that you have to go back to the scriptures because the scriptures aren't, um, and this is one of the things I argue, argue for in the book, the scriptures are not saying, hey, fatherhood saves us. Right. Or spiritual experiences save us. Yeah. What it's saying is, this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saves us. And until yeah. you come into the story
0: that's good. and
1: listen to the context and the contours of the story, you won't have any idea what God as Father means. But let's just watch what's happening between Jesus and his Father, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's what anchors you. So uh, I'm trying to drag pe- people. I mean, I, it, this is... I, I've quoted scripture extensively throughout. I'm trying to get people back into the story of scripture to see how it's all there for them.
0: Yeah, so, that's good. Yeah. I, I do really like the way your book's described as both mystical and missional. Yeah. And uh, I want to, I want to know what that means to you and why both are important. But first, before that, maybe you could just describe or define what it means to be a mystic. Cause some people yeah. that may hear that and think you're like a witch. So. <laughs>
1: right. Uh, to me, mysticism, Christian mysticism, is yeah. the conviction that God is not an idea. God is real. God is here. God is now. Yeah. And that salvation is not just a legal idea, but salvation actually happens in the interface between the human life and the God life. That's what I mean by mysticism. Yeah, um, It's an awareness, it's a, it's a Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God. It's a living awareness of the reality of God that transforms us. So that's yeah. what I mean by mystical. Um, I think actually, Ryan, I think Christianity in the 21st century had better in a hurry recover its mystical elements, because we have so many people who are fleeing the church because the church has either just been a moralizing institution, or it's been an institution that just traffics in theological and philosophical ideas. Our hearts are hungry for an experience of God. Augustine said it so well, classically, when he said at the beginning of Confessions, you awaken us, O God, to delight in your praise, for you You have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless until they rest in thee. That's not just a mental thing. For Augustine, That was the warmth of the heart. It was the heart of man touching the heart of God. So that's what I mean by mystical. I think the church has to get that back.
0: Yeah. So tell me, tell me about the, the missional piece of this. So the, the book is yeah. those, those things. So tell me about how it's both of those things.
1: Yeah, isn't it funny how very few people are talking missional anymore these days? That yeah. was kind of a hot thing for a while. But, yeah. You know, they were right. You know, back in the day when we were talking missional, that God is missional. And mm-hmm. th- this language precedes the missional church movement. Yeah. That God is first who He is an imminent deity, the processions, the uh, unoriginate Father, and the only begotten Son, and the Spirit that precedes. That's a movement that Thomas Aquinas said it was pure act, actus purus, its living vitality. So you have that, the processions, but then you have the missions. The mission of yeah. God the Father to come into the world in the incarnate Son, and then the mission of the Spirit to carry on the work of the Son in redeeming humanity. Well, that mission results in the Church, and the Church is the—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, um, it's the place where the missions land. And through which those missions are extended. So I, um, I think that the whole of the Christian life is missional. I think that our worship is missional. We're drawing people into the worship of the triune God. I think that the whole way that we live in the world is to be marked um, by the signature of the son's life, which is a life of giving himself for the world, even unto death. And that we need to be that kind of people that are we're not trying to hold on to our lives, but we're radically trying to give our lives away for others, especially those that are on the underside of power. Uh, the poor, the orphan, the alien, the widow, those, those are special objects of our concern because they're objects of God's concern. So I was very loath. To write a book of spiritual theology that didn't, on every page, push us out into the world. Yeah. And um, I, I, when you look at the New Testament, the New Testament everywhere is pushing the church out into the world, and it sees the mystical experience as being bound up with the transformation of the whole created order. You know, Romans eight. Yeah. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Yeah. For um, when they're liberated, it'll be liberated from its bondage to decay. So somehow, the liberation of the cosmos is caught up with our own liberation, right. um, Our own unveiling as the sons and daughters of God. So I don't think that you can have to answer the question. I don't think that you can have a genuinely mystical experience of God that isn't pushing you out into the world in love for other people and radical love for the world. That's kind of what I mean by that. I was trying to show those things are married.
0: Yeah. I mean, so much of your, of the book is really about the way that God meets us in hardship and difficulty. And if I reflect on the last 12 months of my life, they've been uh, significant for me personally, especially in regards to my own having grown up in the church, came to faith really young. I don't remember a time I was not a follower of Jesus, but the last 12 months have been the deepest experience of intimacy with, with him that I've had. And And, and, and what he's shown me is that in so many ways, uh, pain is the path to intimacy with him and facing it. And I've spent a lot of years of my life trying to avoid pain of the past and the more that I've leaned into it and faced it and processed it the deeper that relationship has become. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of people are experiencing some version of that this mm-hmm. year with everything that's going on. And mm-hmm. one thing I'm hearing so much about from people in my own church right now mm-hmm. is how how though, how how far God feels, you know, mm-hmm. they're having that experience. And mm-hmm. so I think that so much of that has to do with how many Christians have been content to allow the Sunday worship service to to mediate mm-hmm. their relationship with God. Yeah. Which, which feels like it works until we get hit with a pandemic and yeah. have to sh- shut down Sunday worship and then it shipwrecks your faith because mm-hmm. the foundation of your relationship with God has been mm-hmm. taken away. Mm-hmm. And so there's this ocean of people right now that are feeling pretty far from God. Yeah. Uh, not just in my church, but I just think in general right now. So how would you encourage people who are walking through a season like that where they don't feel God's presence?
1: Mm, I... One of the things I was so surprised to discover when I started mining the richness of the the great tradition was how consistently the message came through that the stripping of our sense of an experience of God is actually the threshold of genuine intimacy with God. Hmm. And I really wasn't prepared for that. What set me up for it was, um, and this is where I, I think I kind of come to the limits of what my charismatic upbringing could do for me. I, I when I was 16 or so years old, I had a really powerful experience of God that just put me on a spiritual cloud nine for about a, a year, maybe maybe more than that, where it just God was in everything. I saw Him in everything. Every worship service was so good. Prayer was good. Reading the Bible was good. Spiritual conversations were good. Everything was good. I just I I honestly I thought I have experienced God in a way that nobody else has. Like I yeah. just I figured it out and. You know, uh, one degree of glory to the next. You know, yep. it was, that was Second Corinthians three seventeen and eighteen all day long. You know, transforms. Yep. So for me, that that scripture actually, what Paul says that we all with unveiled faces reflect the glory of the Lord, being transformed into His likeness with ever increasing glory, glory to glory. I really thought, okay, the Christian experience is up and to the right. Yep, all the time. Yeah, that, that's what you ought to expect is that this is just going to get better and better and better and everything is just going to be your presence is heaven. And you know what I mean? Like everything is just going to radiate a sensible experience of the presence of God. And then when I was somewhere in the middle of my senior year of high school, 17 years old, just like that, the lights went out. Wow. And all of those fuzzy feelings that I had for God, they just vanished. And yeah. I just went in my charismatic framework. I thought either this is a load of BS. Yep. You know, or I'm I broke something.
0: yeah, I did something. Wrong. I may got
1: mad, I didn't do this right, you right. know. And um, I remember, gosh, that lasted, Brian for a couple years,
0: wow. where
1: I just it was a dark night of the soul. that I didn't know it at the time, but that's what I was in the middle of. And I was reading CS. Lewis's the screwtape Tape Letters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and there's a great chapter in the screw tape letters where in the attempt to undermine the soul of this young Christian man, the junior tempter comes to the senior, you know, the guy that he reports to. And he says, he basically says glowingly, oh, he's in, you know, our guy is in a season of aridity and darkness and we've got him now. Right. And his, you know, mentor says to him, you crazy, like you don't have him now. Actually, this is what God uses more than anything else to get possessions of a person's soul. That when a Hmm. person comes to the place where they look around at a universe in which every trace of God seems to have, vanished and they feel forsaken and they still obey the Lord, our cause is never more dire than in that moment. That, Ryan, that did it for me. And all of a sudden it was that seminal moment of like realizing, wait, when everything is being stripped away and I'm reduced to the bare act of faith. Yeah. I can't feel anything, but I believe that God is and I'm going to go forward as though He is, even though like now I really know the Lord. And and uh, that, you know, that lesson that I think Lewis conveyed so well has been confirmed over and over and over again by so many saints throughout church history who just talk about it that way, that so many of us mistake faith for a feeling of faith. Yeah. Or we mistake love for feelings of love. And that's, that's dangerous territory. And it's yeah. great when we feel faith and when we have, when the blood is racing through our veins and we feel good, that's a great thing. What a gift of God. Yeah. but. If that's not there, you can actually be quite certain that God is drawing you into a very deep place with him. He's,
0: yeah.
1: he's uh, As Bart said, he's burning you right down to faith, and that's yeah. one of the things that he has to do for us. Yeah. So to those people that are in that place where they feel desolate spiritually, uh, I just encourage them uh, to let the Lord do his work. Just because you're not sensing God does not mean that God has vanished. Right. God is actually He God is omnipresent.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: He his His presence does not ebb and flow with our experience of Him. And, and so believing that actually has a way of anchoring us, I think.
0: Yeah. 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 And I think I think being very honest with Him in the midst of that, like that's been a big thing for me, is, mm-hmm. is learning when I sit with God every day. To hear him asking me the question, what are you feeling today? Yeah. And, and on yeah. those days that it's not good to tell him now. I was even reading this morning, I think it was Job six or seven. And Job's in the middle of this long lament, and he's saying yeah. that he's gonna air his complaint mm. to God. And he's just being, and and at first you read that. And you think, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. And that sounds like everything that Job says, especially in that one verse, is so different than so much of the, like, when you ask the average Christian, how are you doing? And you hear some cheesy line like, better than I deserve. I understand that that's true to a point. It also feels inauthentic to the honesty that we read about in the scriptures. And I was struck even just this morning reading about about what a So it doesn't sound faith filled to say, I'm going to air my complaint to God, Mm -hmm. but that it is such a deep demonstration of faith to trust God with the darkest part of you. Even if you're not feeling him, even if you are angry or hurting or struggling to air that I think is such a a significant way back Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. experiencing him again.
1: Yeah, well, the writer of Hebrews says that, that, um, that uh, whoever comes to God has to believe, one, that he is, and two, that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. What we don't often realize is that complaint actually fulfills both of those. Yeah. <laughs> that you can't – the act of complaining is already an act of faith. The act of lamenting, the act of shaking your fist at heaven is already an act of faith because it presupposes that there's somebody there. Sure, totally. To hear you, and when you're shaking your fist at heaven – You're doing it because you want God. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about. So it comes out of relationship. My wife and I just celebrated 20 years of marriage. And one of the things I know now that I did not know when we were first married is that when you're fighting, it's actually a great statement of solidarity. Yeah. You believe that there's one, there's somebody there to listen to it. And you just, you're feeling mistreated inside the whole thing. So you vocalizing it is a way of pressing back into the relationship. I just think that more Christians need to need to know that. And yeah. I think that they need to know that the son of God who walked among us in human flesh for a second there kind of became an atheist, you know, I mean, my God, <laughs> my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> right. Right. You know, and that's, I'm stealing. I think it's, I think GK Chesterton said something to that yeah. effect, but that, that Jesus is the embodiment of, a, of humanity who for one reason or another feels and experiences God forsakenness. And I remember reading Jürgen Moltmann's The Crucified God for the first time, in which he said that the central question of Christian theology is who is the God in the cross of Christ who feels forsaken by God?
0: Hmm. And
1: something really shifts in you, I think, when you understand that, that the Jesus who is with me is the Jesus who also has cried out in dereliction he's also cried out from the bottom of the darkest pit my you talked about reading the job this morning i'm also reading yeah, job and also yeah. just this morning read psalm 88
0: which yeah, is the most yeah.
1: depressing psalm in the entire no psalter. no resolution no resolution no hope The yeah, ends but nope. the darkness is my closest friend right And i just sat there this morning in the darkness on my porch reading that thinking this is you jesus this is yeah. you talking to us the darkness is my closest friend you have been there you have gone to the darkest places of humanity and when we find ourselves there we have a companion yeah there you know so yeah i i I just god is there that's what i'd say to those people that are struggling it's good god is there just so open your eyes to it and let him do his work in you i think he's stripping you of your senses leading you into union
0: yeah. well I'm, I'm certain it wasn't a strategic decision to release this book during a pandemic but uh, no. but in God's providence yeah I, I would really say I, this is a it's a timely i think especially because of the vein in which you're writing about this it's such yeah. a timely time for people to find this book pick it up and read it and I think could be a really important companion uh, to many people yeah thanks I hope so I hope it so well, I've been trying to to end on a positive note. There's lots of negative stuff to talk about. <laughs> this this year, that's Say Cela. Right. He's so, like trying
1: to pull the plane out of the nosedive. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> just it's just rough. So let's let's just do a couple of rapid fire questions. If we, what's uh what's something simple that's bringing you joy right now?
1: Uh, oh, something simple that's bringing me joy right now. Do You know, I find in my prayer life lately. I'm remembering how important it is to ask for daily bread and I'm enjoying that. And I'm just thinking about, um, the things that I need in a given day and I'm asking God for those things, little things and seeing him be faithful on those things. And uh, that's bringing me a lot of joy. You know, I, I think in some ways, in the journey of faith, the deeper you get into it, in some ways, the more simple it gets. You're always kind of returning back to square one. When I first started praying, Ryan, that's when I was seven years old, six years old. That's how I prayed. You Just too. thinking about what was coming up. I go, God, I need help with this. I need help with that. And he's still faithful on that. That's bringing me a ton of joy lately. It's good. Yeah.
0: What's something that you've read or listened to recently that inspires you?
1: Uh, read or listened to recently that inspires me? Man, have you, have you, have you watched the Hamilton musical on Disney Plus?
0: <laughs> I have not watched it yet. We've been talking about it. we watched
1: it. We've watched and listened to it. It's been on repeat in our house for a month and a half. It's, it's exquisite. Good? I just, right.
0: that's what I keep watching
1: it again with my daughter yesterday afternoon. And now we're going to go watch it again. We love it. Love it. Hamilton It's just right. me inspired. How can people do that? It's so amazing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's uh what's something that you're working on or thinking through right now that makes you feel alive?
1: I, I love pastoring and I'm grateful, you know, stepping out of a lead pastoring position was good for my soul. Mm. I'm really enjoying being back in that chair i love congregational life so that's bringing me a ton of joy i'm also um i'm really excited to get this book in the hands of people yeah and i have another project that i'm thinking about that's more oriented to the desert fathers cool and uh, talking with my agent about that and trying to figure out the best path to do that so I'm really as I'm looking on the horizon I got another writing project that's bringing me a lot of uh, joy thinking about that coming up so
0: yeah That's awesome all right last question what's your best piece of advice to the average person living through the dumpster fire that is 2020
1: oh just remember Jesus just remember Jesus that's 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 a remember Jesus keep things really simple Uh, stay away from the noise you know stay away from social media as much as you can and you don't actually need it people don't realize this anymore like people go to social media now for their news and it's stupid right. Right. You, know, you can just go to the BBC or USA today and read the headlines and then go back to your normal life you don't have to get it through somebody's angry rant on Facebook
0: that's you know? right it's so good
1: remember Jesus keep it simple lean on the people that you trust if you're able to come back to church I know that we got real scrambled on that but the first definition of being the church is that we are the gathered community around the reality of the word and the sacrament. And we need to get our butts back in church. I think that's going to lift a lot of right. people's hearts and get them out of the dumpster fire.
0: Good, man. Yeah. Well, Andrew, the book's great. We'll, uh, we'll share a link to it. But I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time in the midst of such a busy season uh, to yeah. sit and talk with me for an hour. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, man.